Today's episode of Found Down is brought to you by Unwound Retreats. Unwound Retreats offers fun events and travel experiences for nurses locally and internationally. Founded by me, Nicole Johnson, ICU nurse and host of the Found Down podcast, I provide opportunities for nurses to practice self-care, learn, and travel together. These last two years have been brutal in healthcare, and why not give yourself the gift to unwind, learn, and grow? Previous guests have loved the experiences, especially because you can just show up and know that everything will be taken care of. Unwound Retreats is offering exciting and luxurious retreats in Morocco and Mexico. Go over to unwoundretreats.com and sign up to get on the email list so you can find out more. Hey there, this is Nicole. I just have a few announcements before we get into today's episode. One is I have a new mini nurses retreat that'll be happening on March 3rd. We'll do some self-care, including mindfulness and yoga and meditation. Uh, check out the details for that on my website at Unwound Retreats, or you can go to founddownpodcast.com and there's a link to Unwound Retreats. It's, of course, a virtual event and Des Wood will be doing the yoga and meditation. Also, I think my nurses retreat that I was talking about in June will be pushed back till till August or so. We're still sorting out some details with what what can we do regarding the pandemic. And the other thing is I want to say thank you and welcome to the show. If you're new to the show, I totally appreciate your support. If you want to support the Found Down podcast, one way to do it is to to leave an honest review on whatever platform you listen. It really does help us uh, and us, I mean me, but (laughs) it helps me go up the ranks in Apple Podcasts if you do write a review. The other is I still have some merch available for sale if you're interested in that. Also, I'd love to hear from you. Pop me an email, founddownpodcast at gmail.com or reach out to me on Instagram at founddownpodcast. That's it. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Found Down Podcast. This is a podcast of untold nursing stories that are sometimes hilarious, dark, insane, and anything in between. As a warning, this show is rated E and is mature in content. It often deals with the reality of life and death and how we as nurses intersect with that on a regular basis. If we laugh, it's not out of disrespect. We love what we do and have every intention of continuing to do so. With that, enjoy the show. Well, hello and welcome to the Found Down Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Johnson, and today I'm so excited because I'm talking to Dr. Angela Cuny, an assistant nursing professor at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. Dr. Cuny has a PhD in nursing with a focus in anthropology with two areas of research interests. One is understanding the health practices in the older Amish community, and the other is building evidence-based practice in nursing students. Now, today I hope to talk to Angela about her experience working with the Amish and how did that evolve and what she's learned. And then also some of the challenges that she is an assistant nursing professor. What are the challenges that some of our nursing students are facing right now in this pandemic? So we have a lot that we could talk about. (laughs) But before we do any of that, welcome to the show, Angela. How are you doing today? Um, You know, today I'm doing really well. There's highs and lows. I feel like in the last week, sometimes you feel like um, you're up against a brick wall, pushing pushing as hard as you possibly can. And sometimes you feel like, I got this. I'm over, I'm climbing over the wall and I see the sunshine and and it is actually a beautiful sunny day here. So perhaps I'm feeling like I'm getting over the wall today, but 
it it's one of those years where different walls <laughs> keep appearing um and then you have to find ways to get over them and continue on with with what we're doing so i know that a lot of different professions are experiencing that and um i actually wear two hats well i wear many hats but in the profession of nursing i also have um i'm a supplemental nurse at mayo clinic and the uh, working with children with chronic chronic health conditions. And it's really interesting to have one hat in practicing nurse world and one hat in education where we're preparing students for practicing and they each have really different pressure points. So in practicing nursing, when there's a lot of patients that come in or if there's a lot of sudden need or you know a lot of patients suddenly have symptoms that they need to manage or medication issues that they need to deal with, those issues are very imminent in the time that you need to respond to that in the shift. And in the world of education, they're sort of like slow moving boulders (laughs) (laughs) that um, just takes so much coordination to think about how you're going to move 40 students through a simu through one simulation lab with a handful of mannequins without having the students be near each other and without having and having the mannequins continuously disinfected and all of the equipment that is required for the students and then on top of that Um, What do we need from the students in order to prepare them for clinical practice, Um, working with our clinical partners to figure out, okay, who needs, because, you know, for a long time, it was just like TB patients who would need students to be fit tested Mm -hmm. um, for the masks. But now when students go into any, you know, possible situation where there might be a COVID symptom or a COVID patient or all of these scenarios, all of these clinical placements where we used to just send students to not have to think about, you know, being fit tested. Now they're all having to be fit tested. So there's just, there's a lot of coordination. So time is sort of taken in two different ways in the world of education, in the world of practice. And so I say that because in the world of education, it's not necessarily that um, every single day I'm having all of these unpredictable things maybe thrown at me in the way that you might experience in practice, Mm -hmm. but there's like this iceberg or this like boulder that's moving towards us (laughs) that we need to figure out how to work with. And then, you know, like pulling this, these, you know, 120 nursing students towards the profession of nursing all at the same time. So yeah, there's just, there's sort of like different pressure points, but I think that, so I think that's why like some weeks feel really good and we feel like we've made progress Mm -hmm. and we're pulling these 120 students and we have the strength and some weeks we feel like, oh my gosh, there's so many barriers to overcome to get them to their end point that, um, you know, it just feels exhausting. So sometimes you just like, and then in those exhausting moments, you have to figure out ways to rejuvenate yourself. So last night I took a walk in the brisk 14 degree (laughs) evening and I walked downtown Decora and just looked at the looked at the street lights and the downtown buildings which always kind of soothes my mind was there so, snow on the ground there's a lot of snow on the ground we maybe have um almost a foot I think mm. yeah I read we, it 
the kind of place where we get snow, like snow comes and then it stays until like April. <laughs> oh, I want to go there. Um, I, it's just, it's too rainy here. I prefer the snow over the rain any day. So, Me too. <laughs> and what I'm just on your topic of re- rejuvenation, I read in your bio that you love to do a lot of skiing and mm-hmm. so have you been doing much of that to help soothe your mind when it gets stressful? You know, um, so I have an 11 month old and typically I, I cross country ski, you know, at least weekly because we have a lot of trails around Decorah. Um, and yeah, managing time right now with an 11 month old and two older children, which I didn't even, you know, kind of mention as you asked how I'm doing the other added component of being a nurse and an educator is when you are a working parent in the midst of COVID and any little symptom that any, any one of the five of us have has to be evaluated for COVID and then possibly everybody's quarantining until there's a test back. And so, yeah, hasn't been much time for, um, skiing as much this year. So Hmm. I, um, I set up my bike trainer in my, in my, the back of my kitchen (laughs) (laughs) and hop on it any 20 minutes that I can, because skiing, skiing takes, you know, you have to sort of get in the car and go across town and grab your skis and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah, we've had lots of fun with the kids. There's an outdoor ice skating rink and there's a, a sledding hill and there's, it's a, it's a really fun outdoorsy town. So I do, I do love skiing and that's a really important part of, of me being well. But last winter I was eight months pregnant, <laughs> eight, nine months pregnant. And this winter we're all just navigating mommy finding alone time. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's important. So you wear many, many hats. Let's go back since we were talking about nursing students and the challenges around that. What is it that they are facing right now? Like, um, we had talked sort of pre-interview about sort of the, there's aspects of the curriculum that, you know, that you have to deal with when I don't know, potentially with nursing students and maybe working in getting released early. And then also what they might feel emotionally during this time or what's coming up for, I want to call them your kids. What's coming up for your kids? (laughs) Nursing students. My peeps. Your peeps. Um, Yeah. It's funny on campus. So there's there's a clinical activity where I walk with students across campus and we all have our, you know, nursing uniforms and on a liberal arts college, there's, it's not necessarily like a health sciences college. Um, You know, we aren't like on an isolated little health sciences campus. And so some, you know, like the anthropology students or the history students or whatever, and the faculty members are, they're always like, well, I saw you walking with your chicks, (laughs) your baby chicks. But anyway, yeah, they, are amazingly resilient. And um, I think it's, it, patients are the same, right? Patients and their families are, are very similar where some have just totally taken it in stride and they just whip out their planner and it's, you know, a few more things to add to their planner, but they're on it and they still eat and sleep and do all their fun things. And then you have some students who, you know, are, are just, they've had, you know, they've had the carpet kind of pulled out from under them and they're still kind of like destabilized, 
restabilizing and just trying to figure that out. And then some students are really, really struggling with the isolation and um, the lack of support. And then you add sort of that personal experience because, you know, it, so on Luther's, Luther's campus, it's a residential campus. And so people live in dorm situations or apart like on campus apartments mm-hmm. um, and the cafeteria has moved to having all of the meals to go. And so these students are like just sitting in their apartments or their, you know, their dorms by themselves really with their roommate who's kind of in their pod. And if they leave, they have to put their mask on. So like even just like going to the bathroom, you know, they have to all, you know, just constantly be thinking through that. So there's always that level of a barrier mm-hmm. between them and the people who like their next door neighbors in the dorm or the apartments. And so a lot of them are really feeling isolated. So instead of head- heading into this vast new world of, you know, wherever they're going for their jobs, feeling like they've got their little nest egg at Luther in Decora, you know, and they're all of their little groups of friends. I think that foundation is feeling a little rocky. Um, and there's, you know, I've, we've witnessed just incredible senses of networking and support and students driving each other to the doctor, even, you know, risking potential COVID exposure and, you know, students helping each other get ready for their interviews and, um, you know, working with online interview process, which is also a, a new experience for students. Um, so I would say they're like navigating the electronic world pretty well, but it's the social, the social world that's really, they're really struggling with that. And then sort of you add to that sort of personal experience of having a little bit of like a rocky social foundation that usually comes out of a four-year college here. And students are feeling questionably confident about their nursing skills and interaction with patients because Mm -hmm. the current graduating cohort um, last spring on a national level, pretty much where all clinicals were canceled. So then we launched into this sort of like plan B and plan C of like, how do we push these students to get their boards passed so that they can get into practice, even though they haven't had the number of clinical hours that the board of nursing typically requires in person where we've had to switch over to virtual or working with simulation mannequins. And so they're just, you know, you see some of the confidence uh, lag. That being said, when I was supporting our senior students in their capstone, their final internship, and they did, they expressed that too. They felt like it took them a while to really get back into the clinical setting after being off all spring and summer. Um, But then when they, once they did, the ones who had really patient receptors and really open communication about their needs and their questions, really practical, then they were able to work with their preceptors, um, who I thought were just amazingly supportive. So I would say, you know, we're, we're seeing this group of nursing students where usually as nurses, right, we're always told to take care of yourself before your patient, like put on your own oxygen mask. Yeah. Um, So that oxygen mask right now is pretty weak. Um, (laughs) Got a low flow. Right, right. We're on a low flow oxygen for the students. And so they're kind of, you know, that struggling a little bit. And then you add on top of that, you know, this whole 
every nursing student when they enter into practice feels what we call the imposter syndrome, where they look around and they think, oh my gosh, everybody else knows what they're doing and I have no idea what I'm doing. So you like exponential um, of what we would typically experience for, you know, the students entering into practice feeling like imposters into this world because they, they really have gotten, you know, exemptions from the boards of nursing saying, even though you've just had virtual clinicals, or online case studies, instead of being on your peds unit, you're good to go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and... there's a number of reasons for that, right? Because we need, we need nurses. Um, mm-hmm. But sorry, I, I feel like I interrupted your train of thought, but. Yeah, I was finishing up. That's kind of where they're at. They're in this sort of like combination of, right? Yeah, their own oxygen masks are on low flow and then they're and then they're entering in with some with some confidence. It, you know, they just they're going to need a lot of support to build that confidence and what we've seen this year is as students have gotten back into practice, they get there. They just need a little extra um, support and nurturing on the forefront. So I was, I was really glad to see, um, you know, there's some, there's, there's really great ways to address this through the nurse residency programs. Mm. Um, and I'm happy to see that there's nurse residency initiatives to support that transition to practice. Okay. Um, because we send them off, they pass the boards and then whoop-de-doo and then they land in their job. And so I think hospitals that have structures in place that really support and address the needs of these current nursing grads um, have been really helpful. The students who enter into programs where there hasn't been as strong of orientations feel really out of place and really struck by how much either they don't know or they're not supported or they don't even know like where to get their isolation gown. Yeah. (laughs) Just, you know, there's lots of how to draw blood or how to, you know, I mean, assess a patient. I mean, all of it, because you, you know, absolutely. It's one thing to do it online, you know, right. And, but in person, it's a totally different beast. And I mean, and I, I mean, we just have to provide them with longer um, orientation times and because it's just going to take longer. Mm -hmm. I hope that, I mean, it's so hard, you know, institutions always talk about the financial cost of onboarding new Mm -hmm. staff. And, you know, you only have these many weeks, you know, for whatever for acute care nursing it's like eight weeks for ICU it's like four months um Mm -hmm. but honestly these folks have missed months and months of Mm in-person practice that anyway we just gotta you're absolutely right we have to nurture them um and help them along the way because we really really do need we need nurses we need nurses Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Sort of on that note, I'm curious about what your thoughts are about. I mean, we didn't talk about talking about this, so, but I'm curious about what your thoughts are about the impact of the stress and anxiety and the craziness that has been put on healthcare workers this 
year, this 2020 and 2021. Um, and what do you think, do you think nurses are going to leave the profession? Have you heard anything about that? You know, I've certain, you know, and you're probably in the same type of either listservs or social media or whatever, where people are, um, people are burned out. They're getting really tired in, in all professions. And I think too, nurses also bear a lot of the emotional weight of seeing some really, really sad moments in this last year, um, really hard moments in the last year. So I actually don't know. I haven't seen um, projections or, you know, data related to practicing nurses. And it's probably because I'm in the nurse education world that I receive a lot of information from like the American Academy of the Colleges of Nurses and, and whatnot. But we are seeing growth in the demand for nursing. Um, and so if we receive, if the, if the world of nurses loses nurses during this pandemic or people need to take a pause in their career and then come back, you know, when they feel more rejuvenated, if they've been able to take a break. We, at, at Luther College, we we had more applicants than, than we've had um, in the more recent years. And we, the American Academy of Colleges of Nurses is reporting an increase of nurses who are looking for those, um, the second degree nursing degree. So you have your bachelor's degree and then you go back for nursing. So they're seeing a growth in that area. And, I would, I would expect that um, individuals might be drawn to, you know, who might not have thought about nursing before. It's certainly been in the spotlight this year, nursing and healthcare providers um, and the, you know, everything that you can do with this degree. And so, I don't know, we might, we, we might also draw some additional nurses. So I'm not exactly sure <laughs> where we'll end up after this, if we will. I know that we're in a nursing shortage nationally. We're in a nursing faculty short, a uh, pretty severe faculty shortage nationally. So that is sort of like the state of affairs for nurses. Um, I don't know that the epidemic will necessarily drop it significantly if we also see nursing students come into nursing schools, yeah. but I don't know that we'll know that data for you know a little bit longer, maybe into next year. That gives me hope. Thank you, Angela. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> I appreciate that. So I want to switch gears, if that's okay, and ask you about your work in the Amish community. I think this is so interesting. How did you get involved with um, working in the Amish community? I was in Iowa City practicing at the Iowa Children's Hospital. And we had, uh, so I was working on the hematology oncology floor and we had an Amish family come in whose two-year-old child had been, um, was out in the barn and um, had had an injury and was bleeding, uh, having a brain bleed from an injury that, you know, wouldn't typically cause a, cause an extensive brain bleed. And then they discovered in surgery that he had a hemophilia, a bleeding disorder. Um, where you're unable to clot, your blood is unable to clot, you're missing factors, uh, the clotting factors. And um, it's a genetic disease. And the 
So I was working with the family as the inpatient nurse, and then there were some outpatient uh, nurses who were going to be coordinating the care of this family after they were discharged. So we were in a lot of communication with each other, and I just got really close with the family while they were in and just really felt a strong trust and a strong connection. And in, on the floor that we worked with, we worked with primary nursing. So then at, you know, the shifts that I worked while that family was in, I was taking care of that family who, who was in for quite a while. And then the outpatient nurses were also, you know, we were spending a lot of time together during that time. And the physician, Dr. Jorge DePaulo, who now works in St. Louis, he had connected with a colleague of his in Indiana who did outreach clinics with uh, her hemophilia team to Amish families who have von Wildebrand's disease and hemophilia. And she somehow through that connection, he wanted to bring a team from Iowa to support those outreach clinics. And that, so I was invited, and then there were two outpatient nurses who were invited, who were the clinical care, the clinical care coordinators, and then a couple others from the healthcare team. So we went um, to this enormous sale barn, uh, Amish sale barn, where they would typically sell like horses and have, they have auctions for animals. And yeah, we helped hundreds of Amish individuals who have bleeding disorders all in a day. Um, and it was, yeah. So, you know, on that day it was, I took a buggy ride and, you know, talked to lots of different people. And, and then, um, after that, our team started coordinating outreach clinics for the state for Amish populations in the state of Iowa. And so I was again, invited to, to join those outreach clinics and, and then became part of this team that worked with Amish populations with bleeding disorders in, in Iowa. And we would go to, uh, so annually, and well, really, I guess we'd try to do, you know, one, one community in the fall and one community in the spring, um, or at least get to one community each year. But we have a great team of physicians and physical therapists and phlebotomists and who are doing genetic screens. We have um, social workers, nurses, outpatient and inpatient. So yeah, and now that I'm a teacher, I actually bring nursing students who do sort of like the check-in and intake and all that stuff at the clinics. So that's how I started working with them. So those have been going on since 2004. And, um, and then I entered my graduate work while I was in Iowa City to become a public health nurse. And along the way, you know, paths always shift and change. But Along the way, the community health master's program at the University of Iowa closed, um, and I was given two options, one of which was the master's in public health. One was a PhD where I could infuse some of my anthropology interest, which, is, which was working with the Amish. So anyway, I went down the PhD route, and on that route, um, wrote a grant to continue working with Amish families who have children with a wide variety of genetic illnesses to really understand what their needs are, what, like what happens to them in between, like when they leave the hospital or when they have a doctor's appointment and when they have their next doctor's appointment a year later, mm. um, what are they doing in between there and um, who's taking care of that child? And, and in a 
in a culture and in a community where um, they have so such a strong internal support network. On the outside, sometimes I think it's easy to judge and say, oh, they just like don't do anything or like the kids probably just like working on a farm or whatever. So I was also really interested in what were their really like what were their assets, their cultural assets um, that we could partner with in healthcare. And sort of the, the bigger, broader picture of that is how should we and can we partner with many different individuals in the United States who come from networks where they have assets in health specific assets inside of their community. And the, you know, the bigger question is why does biomedical medicine always trump other, Mm -hmm. um, and we even call them other, um, by our term supplemental and complementary, we Mm -hmm. consider them the other something supplemental, um, instead of just two integrated systems Mm -hmm. for these families. And, um, so that's kind of the bigger, broader, it's what I like to think about as, as I teach and as I practice. Um, and so working with the Amish was certainly sort of a, a very practical, obvious way for me to explore that a little bit more, but also, also provide clinical support for these families to make sure that their care improved rather than feeling um, on the outside of a healthcare system that they really, I wanted to be able to empower Amish families to feel like they are equal partners Mm -hmm. in a healthcare Mm -hmm. relationship Mm -hmm. with the providers. When children have genetic diseases, um, you know, it's not like, uh, I don't know how to say, like, you know, if somebody has like a skin disease or like eczema or whatever, you can kind of manage it at home. When you have a severe genetic disease that you might die if you don't do anything, you must, you must work with the, the healthcare system that has really wonderful, you know, medications and advancements. Um, so as I got to know the Amish and the, the dissertation work that I did was an ethnography, which is an anthropology, um, anthropology method. I looked at and it so this I morning. Lived, what was that? I looked at your your uh, thesis. Today. Oh, you did. Yeah, Funny. your three hundred page thesis. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they're big. Um, because yeah, I li- so you in an ethnography you live with the community that you work with for an extended period of time so that you can um, try to sort of flip yourself into their shoes as much as possible, even though it's not you know, it's not truly possible, but as much as possible, you can kind of see what that daily life looks like rather than just having like a few interviews and talking to people you, you engage. And so, yeah, my husband and I went corn shocking with a family and just, just to, you know, spend time. What was daily life like for them? What is it? it, Yeah, it's a lot slower (laughs) for sure. So they, many Amish families have many children. Um, And I guess by slower, I might mean um, less outside being put onto them. Um, So in in our, yeah, in our experiences, right? We have like social media and people, like just constant people and 
electronic devices. And so there's always input happening all like, you know, 24 hours a day for us. And they're in an Amish family. They don't necessarily have that input happening constantly on a daily basis, um, but they have a lot to manage because they have many children and they have farms and they, um, the, the manual labor is, keeps them very busy, you know, and just, I mean, I'm the mother of three and on my days off, I feel like I cook breakfast and then I cook another breakfast and then we're in morning snack and then it's lunchtime and then it's afternoon snack and then it's dinner. And I feel like my entire day is like that. And, and that is busy, but also like my, my life is like texting friends in between, or, you know, like the news is on or a radio show or whatever, or I'm listening to a podcast where, you know, the, when I say less busy, just maybe more like focused, a little more streamlined where they can do, they can do a task at a time. They have, they have a lot going on, you know, but um, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of children around (laughs) the, I think in the United States, the average, the average Amish family has six children, but um, in the Iowa communities, which are a little bit more conservative, the average families and in my dissertation was, is usually like nine to 10 children per family. And then, I mean, I knew some families who had, you know, 12, 13 children. So that's a lot of children. And you have, so if you think about it, it's not like 12 to 13, like five-year-olds, you know, you've got like your teenager, like your 20-year-old all the way down to like your two-year-old. So it's sort of like you have these like many groups of people living in this house um, who are doing different activities. So they go to grade school until they're in eighth grade. And then once they're in, once they're out of eighth grade, the girls are kind of doing like a trade, trade school where they're either sort of like training in with their mom to kind of learn how, what it is to manage a household, or they're helping run a local store, or they're teaching the schools. Um, and the boys are usually working with their fathers to learn whatever trade business. So it's farming, roofing, um, carpentry, whatever it is. They're, they're usually, and like maybe not their own dad, but just, you know, one of, one of those trade options that they have going on. And so, you know, you're in, kind of a household where um, after really the age of 13, those children are kind of off learning their trade. And so they're, you know, they come home for lunch or they might, they might come home just for dinner. Um, but the little ones are, are around, they're doing chores or they've gone to school. And then they, because there's no TV, no radio, people aren't sitting on their phones chatting. They're doing different uh, craft craft activities like uh, canning or um, quilting or like you said the carpentry. There's always you know somebody's always got a project to work on. Um, but the kids are so much fun. So my children too have come out there and they, you know, one of the families has had a big trampoline. So like a whole bunch of other kids were there jumping on the trampoline and lots of families visiting families. Mm. Um, and yeah, so they're, I mean, they're, they're very social. They're very, um, they're, yeah, I would say they're very engaging and very easy to get along with. Um, but it's just, it's without all of the noise of our world. 
Nice. It sounds nice. Like the stripped away. Can't even imagine what that. I mean, it, it feels weird when you go off the grid for a few days, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I did kind of feel like I was camping, you know, like mm -hmm. I was just camping with friends, <laughs> which um, is nice to have those moments when you can just turn it off. Totally. So what has been the most interesting thing about working with the Amish community? Like what has surprised you the most? Okay. So as, as a woman and an educator and a nurse and a mother, I've often wondered what it would be like if I switched roles or wasn't able to, or wasn't able to switch roles or um, how would I feel about that? And would I want that opportunity? Would I want to stay where I am? Some days I feel like I want to run away and open a spa on an island. Um, <laughs> and some days I am rejoicing that I feel really fortunate of who, who, who I am and that I had the choices that I did and that I was able to become a nurse, which fits my personality really well. And, and there's so many cool things to do with nursing. You wouldn't even have to leave nursing to switch your job. But um, the one thing that I think really struck me after working with the Amish was just how connected I felt to the healers inside of the Amish community. Mm. And I think a lot of people who don't know the Amish well don't know that they have their own entire healthcare system on the inside. So they have herbalists and reflexologists and um, nurses and midwives who are all lay trained and, and provide support for their community in between when they go to see biomedical healthcare. And, and so the women who are in those roles and even the men I've met a couple men who are they called they're called brohas the um the healers the Amish healers who really are focused on supporting wellness and health and in in the wholeness of somebody who is Amish and I feel like that that fits so well with my paradigm of working with with patients that I, my whole goal in life is to advocate and empower patients to be whole people that we treat as a healthcare team, that we don't just treat a heart attack or we don't just treat COPD, that we're treating a whole person. And that's so obvious to the healers inside of the Amish because they're treating an Amish person who happens to have this, you know, condition and it's their, you know, family or whatnot. But, but I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't expecting to connect so deeply with them. Um, and we've, we also were having conversations with, um, you know, with the, with the women who became nurses who weren't married yet. Um, one ended up getting married, but, um, saying, you know, like, is like, is this who I am? Like, am I stuck in this role? Or now do I switch and like become a mother? Or can I just switch and like start a quilt shop? Or, you know, because there's some, there's some hard days, like you don't want to be called to fix somebody's wound at 1am when you're having a really nice night's sleep. Mm -hmm. um, same with us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm 
Um, yeah, so I was I was really surprised at how many um, sort of like innate human experiences and journeys are very similar when your when your lifestyle can be so different. Mm-hmm. I had it was interesting, you know, both your, so I'm really close with your sister, Martha Oldenburg, and we both individually have been over to Cambodia and worked with their nurses over there. And I remember thinking, so the, the tools, tools or the ways in which we do the job are sort of different, but at the end of the day, we all want the same thing. A nurse is a nurse is a nurse. So yeah. Interesting perspective. I I love it. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, it just was something that I didn't expect at all. And I, I maintained really close relationships with, with the, the herbalists and the nurses that I worked with. Yeah. That's great. That's yeah. Great. I just love that. Angela. Nurses I just, are awesome. Nurses are awesome. <laughs> nurses, nurses are, are awesome. awesome. Yeah. If I just want to say thank you so much for spending time with me today. Um, thanks for sharing all of your insights into what nursing students are going through and also your amazing work in the Amish community. Do you have any closing thoughts for the episode today? Anything you want to say to any nurses out there who are listening? (laughs) Well, I guess, you know, it just, we we're hearing this message over and over, right? Just we, as, as much empowerment that we can provide for each other and as much, um, grace in if people are a little slower or if they're delayed, um, or if their healthcare doesn't look like ours. I think one thing this year has really taught nurses is to find space for grace in our daily activities and hold our judgments aside. Well, that's very gracious. Very gracious. Uh, Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. And I'm just going to close out the show with saying, stay safe and stay sane. And we'll see you on the next one. Okay. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave an honest review on whatever platform you're listening. Also, feel free to share this with your nursing colleagues. If you'd like to email me, you can do so at founddownpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to send in any stories. Just make sure they're HIPAA compliant. Also, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at founddownpodcast. We'll see you on the next one.